Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Iron Radio listeners are an experienced, clever lot who are in tune with their bodies and whom I'd like to crowdsource regarding a new study and an invention of mine. This is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. I've been fortunate to have a provisional patent granted regarding a coffee methodology that is research supported to either enhance the anabolic effect of meals or to support cognition in a unique way. It's not a pill or a powder, but rather a fascinating way to brew coffee that may surprise you. And that's just part of the story. This is a very early stage bucket list sort of achievement that I cannot undertake alone. If you're interested in getting further educated on functional coffee and health, I'm asking that you email me at lonman7 at hotmail.com to get involved. We'll have a brief email exchange that will get the ball rolling on something I think you'll find both fun and beneficial. I need your rare combination of traits. So thank you 50 times. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm a nutritionist, and I'm an exercise scientist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm a faculty member of the Kerrigan Institute and creator of the Flex Diet Certification. Sweet. All right, yeah. folks. Uh, this is going to be an episode of questions. Uh, we have a lot of listener questions, and then the topic of the day is actually going to be quick-fire questions. I've More questions. A, I've got a list of 10 uh, for you, uh, Dr. Nelson. And oh, then nice. It'll be fun. I just thought maybe people could pick up a little bit from your opinion on certain things. Some of it's just a little inside peek into how Mike trains and lives a little bit. But also, like, you know, there may be some recovery or supplement tips or, or whatever. Just professional opinion stuff uh, might be informative as well. So listener questions followed by quick fire questions. You know what I'd like to do, though, to start off today? We haven't done this in a while, and something triggered this for me, but is achievements in training. Uh, sometimes it's just fun to look back over the last couple of weeks and even the past week and, like, what have you been up to lately kind of thing. Uh, and I can tell you uh, the n- notable event for me is that I am so sore I can barely sit in this chair. <laughs> I Oh, wow. My legs and my adductors, uh, my glutes – are so torched. Uh, all I did was up the volume, but I guess it just, it was a wake up call for me that I had been detrained like this summer. Like I'm going to the gym, maybe, I don't know, two or three times a week, but it's funny if you don't log things, like sometimes during the summer, I get caught up in other things and I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm training pretty regularly. And I'll look at my training log. and be like, Oh my God, I haven't been to the gym in, you know, three days or four days, <laughs> you know, but, um, I just did three sets, like three straight sets of light to medium weight um, basic movements, you know, squat, deadlift, and bench, uh, like three sets of 10 to 12. Uh, and I just got so sore all over because I think I'd been doing heavier, lower rep stuff. And, mm-hmm. just, you know, we were talking about volume recently. Holy yeah. God. 
just wrecked. R-E-K-T wrecked. So, <laughs> uh, anyway, so that's sort of, uh, I guess it's an achievement. Like I said, wake up call for me that, hey, you know, you're detrained. Because if you can't handle three sets of ten, you know, you, you got to change something, I, w- I would argue. <laughs> yeah, so. and it's weird how that's just such a different stimulus. I know I've done that for... I don't do a lot of straight bar bench press, but this past year just started doing a little bit here and there and I uh, did three sets of 10 and I was like, Oh wow. My chest is sore. And it was just such a, I don't know, weird thing to go from, you know, just a few sets of lower rep stuff. I would basically just test it once in a while and see where I was at and be like, ah, don't do it for a while. Yeah. Um, and how much you forget is just a skill acquisition too. doing those, you know, 10 reps and everything else that goes into it. And I was surprisingly quite sore with a much lighter load afterwards. Exactly. You know, Fortress used to say, once you have a certain amount of experience, I think intermediate or beyond, you can really rock yourself with pretty light weights. You know, just mind in the muscle, focus on form. How's that for alliteration? Mind in the muscle, focus on form. Um, There you go. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's where I was, but anything notable happened to you in the past couple of weeks? Uh, Training-wise, not really. My whole goal was basically just to stay about where I was at with the same stuff with upper body stuff. So I was out in uh, Hood River, Oregon, so we were out there kiteboarding, so I got to ride, let's see, five out of the seven days I was there, so I was super happy with that. rode my 8-meter, my 12-meter most of the time, so pretty windy days, and didn't get hurt, which is good. Didn't do as much jumping practice as I would have liked just due to the, some crazy wind. And then we drove through Bozeman. We literally were in Bozeman yesterday. We drove all the way from Bozeman to Alexandria, Minnesota in one day. So 835 miles. So the gym there is funny because I've been there enough that, you know, you kind of know what equipment to use, which ones you like, what you don't like. And my goal with this travel for since this is the first time I've been home in the past 30 days with upper body stuff was just to, you know, try to remain about even. So I was super tired the other day when I was in Bozeman and, but I did get a one set of, I had just 70 pound dumbbells at an incline for 11 reps. And I just kind of use that as a rough, I call it like a KPI or key performance indicator when I'm traveling. Mm-hmm. If I can just, you know, keep that. And then for rows, just 70 pound dumbbells for 20 reps each side. No, no chog, no straps, nothing, nothing crazy. Shouldn't be any heroic effort, you know. And I just find if I can stay around there, which is definitely off from where my max would be within a couple of weeks of being home, pretty close to back or, you know, a little bit above where I was before. Um, didn't do much lower body stuff there. One, just due to time and two, my legs and knees were still pretty sore. And of course they had, uh, all the equipment on that was in use. So I'm like, ah, just do some upper body stuff and yeah. call it good. Cool. Okay. Hey, um, in fact, let's get into the listener questions. Cause one of them, it sort of echoes what you're saying about just keeping up the key performance indicators, you know, sort of maintenance kinds of things. Um, this is relative to a question from, um, last time from Seb. Um, I think it, I think it was from last time. Um, hi guys. I have a question regarding the boring quote unquote maintenance phase. We often talk about cutting or massing, but we rarely talk about just maintaining. I've heard some stuff on the topic, but nothing extensive. 
Uh, I'm coming out of a cut, wondering if it would be beneficial to maintain my current weight or jump directly into a mass phase. What are the benefits of maintaining for three to four weeks? Uh, I think between phases, he means here. Uh, will it prepare my body better to go into the mass phase? Uh, what about training volume on a maintenance phase? Would love to hear you chat about that. Thanks for an awesome podcast, Seb. What do you think, Mike? Uh, maintenance phases, how long should they last? Like, what might you focus on when you're doing so? Yeah, I would say for that, it just always answer. It depends. And perfect world, the answer I would give them is one that they hate, which is if you've been in a plateau for about four weeks, I'd like to see you stay at that plateau for about at least another four weeks. Mm-hmm. So that would give you kind of eight weeks total. Most people don't want to do that, so I kind of need to get a little funky rearranging stuff or try to have their changes be a little bit slower. And if you look at the literature, I haven't really seen any good stuff. Maybe you have, Lonnie, on how long it takes. But (laughs) my gut feeling is longer is better, but you're trying to weigh that with the, you know, the psychological side of it also. You know, and the fact that they, you know, kind of want to do something else, so they maybe are not into it, so they're not as compliant. I think Alan Aragon has written something that his recommendation was around eight weeks also, I think, if I remember right. I don't remember the source on that, but yeah, in a perfect world, that's that's where I would go and kind of iterate up or down from there. Yeah, the part of his question that I found intriguing, the hard question was, what are the benefits of maintaining for three to four weeks? And that's really hard. If there's a benefit, I I would suggest this, is you're avoiding the minefield of, if you're just coming off a cutting phase, let's say that went on for 16 weeks or something, 20 weeks, I don't know, something realistic, you know, so you got some serious fat and weight loss. A lot of the enzyme activity, like your body is just in storage mode, and every gram of everything you eat uh, I, I would be afraid that fat would be eager, your adipose tissue would be eager to grab it up. Now, I've never really seen anything that muscle tissue behaves the same way. I would think it might, but we're talking about two very different types of cells. You know, um, the pulse fast thing uh, that I've been interested in for years, and I actually used a little bit last time I competed, um, there was a sort of a little thing that I think TC and maybe Chris Shugart to some extent were we're talking about following that up with not only do the, the fasting, but for fat loss purposes, but acutely like the day after, take advantage of your body's eagerness to store everything and then really overeat a lot of good stuff um, with the idea that it might, you might be even more anabolic like as far as muscle tissue. I, I've never seen anything about that, right? So... It's nice to think that if you go through a period of dieting, then your muscles are super eager and then you could jump right into a mass building phase. I don't think I would do that, right? Because mass building phase, I mean, you're literally overeating calories on purpose. It's not just protein. Um, I like extended periods. And I think it's so individual, which is why, Mike, you and I haven't seen much literature. You know? Yeah. Like, do you wait? I mean, if your goal is to really clean clean your up your act, like if you've been really over fat for years and you want to basically get down, let's say, into the mid-teens or low-teens and percent fat, something reasonable, you know, but lean enough that you can really see your muscles and that sort of thing, I would hold it for a couple of months, to be completely honest, 
right? Yeah. If your if your goal has been to really lean down in sort of a permanent way, you know, like I, when I dropped twenty pounds last year, my goal was to sort of keep it off, and so I'm just sort of maintaining. I like what you said earlier, Mike, about key performance indicators, right? I, so you're going to have to decide, Seb, how long you do this. Again, I don't think the literature is going to say here is the optimal number of weeks. There's that O word, Mike. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it, it, here's a the you know ideal recommendation from the literature. I don't think you're going to find one. I would definitely wait several weeks uh, and maintain, but I appreciate what you're saying, Mike, about psychologically your motivation – Where's your motivation to just maintain? Yeah. Boring, you know. Um, but it, it's cool what you said about pick some performance indicators. Um, you know, uh, like where where you would like to be as a homeostatic, even keel average dude. Like like you said, like it might be a dozen reps with the 70s, you know, in inclined dumbbell press. Or it might be I want to maintain, make sure I can do – 275 in the squat for 10 reps, you know, something like whatever your numbers are, pick them and make sure you hit that mark, you know, every other week or every fourth week or whatever it is. Uh, but I would hold it for a while, Seb. Um, but again, it's up to you and psychologically what you could take. Like I said, I think it's kind of dubious that your muscles are more anabolic after a cutting phase. Uh, they may be. I've just never seen anything about that. I have, in fact, though, seen studies that enzymes like LPL, lipoprotein lipase, it's a fat storage enzyme, sort of imagine it waiting like a sea anemone in the capillaries, you know, in the bloodstream by your fat. It, it sort of extracts fat for storage into your adipose tissue. That is very active after you've been on a hypocaloric diet. So your body is eager to store fat. I don't know how eager it is to rebuild muscle. So I would, again, err on the side of caution and um, give it several weeks psychologically, whatever you can do. He was saying maintain for three to four weeks. I agree with you, Mike. I would double that probably. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's hard because, like you said, there's virtually no literature on that. There's some debate, which we talked about on previous shows, about competitors, like post-show. Like You've talked about this being super low. You know, Do you kind of slowly kind of go back to where you were, or do you be a little bit more aggressive and then kind of taper off. But that's not quite the same thing here because with the competitor, you know that that's a super acute stage and you don't plan to live there. Or here, my understanding is he's trying to, you know, find something lower that's, you know, going to be a little bit more livable. And by that definition, you actually almost want to plateau, right? You want to be able to do a few other, you know, kind of things and not gain a lot of weight, right? So I always explain to people that the end goal is that you, you actually want to be at a plateau, just a lower plateau than where you're at now, right? Because that's going to make your life a little bit easier. Yeah, what, what he's sort of asking is body weight set point. You know, when you yeah. can you reset it, and if so, how long does it take for your hypothalamus and the rest of your you know system to say this is the new me? And there's just I, I've never seen anything you know any consensus on that at all. So um, be cautious. That's I guess that's your recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a little longer than you might think. Find a way to be motivated, yeah, and maintain there. I, I like the idea, in a sense, I know the body's always like a river. It's always flowing. You know, there's always a flux. But 
I like the idea that you you make something a little more permanent by holding it in place for a while. You know. Yeah. Um, okay. Next up from uh, Phil Philip. He says, uh, "Hey guys at Iron Radio, I'm a long time listener and not so long time supporting member." I've gained a lot of information from your shows, but I've never contacted you so far. The reason for this email is your recent bit on a mouse study showing that only fat makes you fat, quote unquote. Um, I read typical mainstream media news article on it uh, early last week, and I immediately thought, I hope this gets covered on Iron Radio. Well, you guys delivered. It was discussed the very next episode. Now, as a sidebar, I'm going to thank Phil for that because he brought that to my attention. I live under a rock. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> I very much liked your take on it, and I just wanted to mention that Men's Health actually covered this study in a non-sensationalist way as well. Hmm. And then he gave me a link. Um, I'm currently finishing up my PhD in ecology and evolutionary biology, working with fish, not mice, but bear with me, he says, um, and would like to add an evolutionary perspective that may not have been covered. Mice have evolved pretty much since a furry, furry little animal survived the, the comet that killed the dinosaurs to thrive <laughs> on a low-protein, low-fat, high-carb diet. Hmm. These guys are basically built to eat grains, fruit, and the occasional insect. This is very different from what early humans would have eaten. It therefore makes sense that they handle carbs and fat and even protein differently than we do. Another thing to keep in mind is that lab mice come in different strains, which have been inbred over generations to show as little genetic variation within the strain as possible. This is vastly different from humans, so individual responses play a much larger role. Um, at around the same time, I saw a recent review on fish oils, which, at least according to mainstream media, again, claims that not only are they not heart protective, but they really have no health benefits at all. And then he has a link here. Um, I'd be very interested to hear your take on this. Anyway, I'd also like to take this opportunity to say I really enjoy the podcast. You guys bring great guests, but are at least as informative, if not more so, when you just talk about current issues, training, and science among yourselves. Keep doing what you are doing. Regards, Phil. So thanks, Phil. That was a very good email. I appreciate the insights. Uh, I will say that one study, and I have not yet read it, but they did use four strains of mice. I know, like you said, they're inbred very specifically to have a certain genetic profile. But I guess they would argue, at least, that there was at least four strains of mice. Um, that certainly do doesn't address the variability in humans. I mean, God, Mike and I were just talking about that with the last question, right? There's yeah. variability in how people respond to diets and refeeds. It's just tough, you know. So um, as far as the fish oil thing, my take on this briefly is – you're always going to see back and forth about things. Um, I have hundreds, literally, of studies on my hard drive about the benefits of omega-3 fatty acids, whether it's to help treat mild depression or whether it's for fat loss or anti-inflammatory effects. I think it's almost without question they have anti-inflammatory effects. I mean, literally, if you and it sounds like you do with your background in biology, when you're looking at um, – substrate for cyclooxygenase enzymes, right, for the, the building blocks of inflammation, omega-6 fats supply that, and omega-3 fats compete, right? They're competitive with omega-6 fats for things like prostaglandin E2, which we can think of as inflammation itself, at least one form. So uh, I wouldn't worry too much about the, the omega-3 things and 
you know, it depends on what your standards are as far as what makes something quote unquote heart protective, you know, uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, I'm definitely going to continue with as many anti-inflammatory type nutrients as I can get, curcumin, fish oils, things like that. I even, when I was rocked this last week, I take a little extra C and E uh, just to sort of help the recovery along. There's some suggestion that that might help. Uh, and there's also many, many studies on antioxidants as well. But uh, the American Heart Association says they don't really help with heart disease. The American Heart Association at my last check says fish oils do, in fact, help with, like, restenosis after surgeries and stuff. So uh, thanks for the insight about the fat makes you fat uh, journalism. Mike, what, what about your take about any of this, the fish oils, <clears throat> et cetera? Yeah, that was awesome. And thanks for him contributing to that with uh, the mouse expert from evolution there. That's super interesting. So thanks for that. The fish oil, it's, I don't read hardly anything in the media per se, because I just want to put my head through a wall. And even, (laughs) (laughs) even articles I do now, I have literally like a handful of editors that I work with. And that's about it, because I don't have time to vet new editors unless, you know, someone like you or someone comes along who recommends someone, then I'm like, oh, okay, that, that's cool then. Because you know, otherwise it's kind of a nightmare. Um, it's always whatever is the thing that's going to grab the most headlines. So stating that fish oil helps inflammation, eh, everyone goes, okay, yeah, I agree. That's not really that controversial. But now if we say, all oh, that fish oil you're taking is crap and worthless, everyone's like, oh, wait a minute, what? This is bad? Um and that may be, you know, based on just one study. You can find one study for anything. At the end of the day, with, with something like that, I just go back to what is the the first principle that it's based on, right? Which would be, hmm, these omega-3 fats are essential, and there's a ton of data to show that, meaning we have to have them in some form in our diet because we can't manufacture them outright. And if we remove anything that's essential, some stuff's probably not going to work the way that it should. Now, what that stuff is, eh, it's probably highly debatable, maybe a little bit different person-to-person disease, pathology, etc. But there's probably going to be a lot of benefit adding that back in when you're deficient. And you can do the same thing with vitamin D. If you're low on vitamin D, adding some back in, probably going to be beneficial. Is that going to add 100 pounds to your bench press? Mm, No, but it may help, right? So, and that's just then magnitude and for what. So, that's... With more and more stuff I look at, it's kind of what I go back to initially. Um, and I got that from Roger Harris talked about that years ago, too, when he was looking at some creatine and beta-alanine stuff. Yes. He's like, the first thing you want to look at is, is there any physiologically plausible reason why X should work? If you can't come up with a single one, yeah, maybe there's stuff we don't understand and maybe you get lucky and it works. He's like, but I would argue you should probably go look for things that at least have plausible physiologic responses. Now, that doesn't guarantee you're going to be right. A lot of times you're still wrong. Right. But at least you're moving in the right direction and you're working inside a, a framework that makes more sense overall. It, that is a great point. We could do a whole episode. Maybe next time yeah. Phil is running me. <laughs> you know, we'll talk about essentiality, right? What makes yeah. – there is essentially six essential nutrients, right? And this is how I design my nutrition classes. Almost all nutrition professors do. Carbs, fats, proteins, vitamins, minerals, water. That's kind yep. of what we're talking about. That's not to say that non-essential nutrients can't be very helpful as supplements. As you pointed out, creatine is technically non-essential. The body yeah. can make it. 
But there's some interesting comments again from guys like Harris that suggest that, well, maybe it's, this is a, a spectrum and it's not just a dichotomy. It's either essential or completely not essential, you know, that kind of thing. But when something is necessary and the body can't make it, you, you run the risk of deficiencies becoming possible, right? And omega-3 fats are something we grossly underconsume, grossly. If you don't seek them, the Western food industry is not going to supply them, right? So uh, I, for decades, literally now, I've read that anti-inflammatory things could be helpful against a lot of these chronic, you know, or sub, sub-acute type conditions. I mean, I just read a paper a few weeks ago, not the whole paper, just a, an abstract about um, antioxidants and anti-inflammatories just slowly in a non-causal way may help reduce the risk of, of different cancers, right? We know obesity, heart disease, um, diabetes, they're all low-grade inflammatory states of one kind or another, and fish oils are probably going to help. Now, to the point about human variation, I have some very cool studies that not everybody r- responds to fish oils the same way either, right? Whether it's reducing their blood triglycerides or... Uh, the anti-arrhythmic effects on heart, you know, contractility or lots of things. So people respond to these things differently. And that's why we've talked about in the past, instead of just doing a gender comparison or something like that, uh, eventually you're going to see science move toward specific genotypes or phenotypes of people. You know, they have a certain trait. And this study only looks at the effect of this supplement on people with this trait, right? So it's going to be a refinement in the way we do things now. I almost feel like the way I do research now is crude, you know, because I look at either people who are highly fit versus sedentary or boy versus girl. But it's going to become more refined than that because it's hard to make blanket conclusions about this is good, that is good when we're moving toward a state of um, individualized nutrition, you know, at least in some, some ways. It's, there are certain human truths like different training principles, like overload or reversibility. I think these things also apply to nutrition, many of them. But there's also a lot of individuality. So, Yeah, and my 30-second pet peeve on that with fish oil studies is everyone glamorizes randomized controlled trials, and I get it, and that's a very high level of evidence. I'm not disagreeing. Yeah. But you can't take that and apply that to absolutely every single study that's ever going to be done because you'll see a randomized controlled trial with fish oil, They'll give them two groups, they'll split them, they'll give them 500 milligrams or some ungodly low dose, and they'll be like, ah, it didn't do anything. It's like, well, you'd be better off testing them to see where they're at, supplementing or getting them to whatever you think is an equicaceous, you know, red blood cell content or whole blood level, and then look to see what you find. So now at least you're comparing a known level with something not just randomize and adding something to a group. But that's, again, a whole episode. <laughs> right, right on. Okay, because we have so many questions and we need to get to break, uh, I'm going to quickly address two of these, uh, and then I'm going to table two. So uh, one is from the one for next week. Uh, and again, I'm doing this in chronological order. This is not order of importance, guys. <laughs> so one is from... Nash and one is from Mitch. These are great questions. I'm going to table your stuff till next week. One has to do with um, meal patterns, odd meal patterns in a client. Uh, And the other has to do with the carnivore diet 
I have a former mm. student who's interested in our take on the carnivore diet. So I'm going to table those two guys. I apologize for that, but we are Phil's away. Mike and I behind the scenes have been having a hell of a time. I'm, I suspect my new version of Skype is to blame. Damn you, Skype. Um, <laughs> but quickly, too, that are have a common thread. And because last week I put a little uh, announcement at the beginning of the episode about the coffee project, uh, just quickly, this first one is from Anonymous. He, uh, but he says, um, I heard the coffee patent section of the podcast. I'm interested in learning more possible. I'm a supporting member if that's required. Thanks. Well, it's certainly not required, and you know who you are. Um, it's just crowdsourcing. It's it's more of a project. The research side uh, isn't something that we'll be doing with the crowdsourcing. Crowdsourcing, I'm just interested in really taste testing to see what you think. Uh, I think it's going to be fun and educational, though, because I'm going to kind of send a packet to everyone, just sort of a manila envelope. And I've had people from all over the world respond to this. I mean, I was amazed in the first 24 hours. I had two dozen people say, hey, I'm in. So it's going to be sort of an education on how to taste coffee, you know, like a fancy coffee taster. Uh, and it's based on the Specialty Coffee Association sort of framework. Uh, but you'll learn how to be a coffee taster, which I think is fun. Uh, and then you're just going to give me some feedback, taste test feedback. But I thought, you know what, there's there's at least 25,000 downloads of this ep- of these shows every month from Iron Radio. So I'm going to crowdsource this. You guys know more than... You know, the handful of us can. So thank you. Thank you 50 times for that. Here's the question, though, uh, from our anonymous listener. He says, I know swimming isn't your specialty, but this is more of a sports nutrition and meat prep question. Uh, I was at a state swim meet with my 10-year-old this weekend. Um, Day one, I watched the coach run the kids through 30 minutes of laps uh, as a warm-up. I thought this was insane Ooh. for a 75-pound kid. He didn't perform well that day. Uh, after that, I had him pull out of warm-ups early. He, perform- he performed way better on those days. This is admittedly an N equals 1 experiment, but it seems to match what little I know in terms of muscle endurance, glycogen, etc. Any thoughts? Am I off base for you know, basically pulling him out of these long warm-ups? Thanks, and keep up the awesome work. Uh, let me offer something really quick, and then uh, we'll get Dr. Nelson's comments. To me, swimming is one of the most endurance abusive a sport uh, kind of sports that you can imagine. I mean, they purposely overreach and straight up overtrain people, um, and then they taper. I hope they taper before meets. Right? They purposely overdo the volume, laps and laps and laps, miles in the water. Uh, very few sports purposely have that built into their culture. So I, I would personally agree with you, uh, Anonymous. Um, I would – 30 minutes is not necessary, right? You can literally increase the temperature of a muscle. Typical warm-ups is – I mean local, if you look locally, like five minutes you know, of continuous activity. So a systemic warm-up, like a whole body thing, like cycling five or ten minutes in the gym, and then you go do maybe a light set or two, depending on your age and fitness level of specific movements that you're about to go heavy that day. Like that's the kind of lifter's way to look at that. Uh, I think 30 minutes is is just too much. Um, I agree with what you're saying, and I'm not surprised he performed better. Uh, why drain their glycogen stores and tax their nervous system and everything else? Um, you know, before they're supposed to perform. Um, 
It, it's almost rem- reminiscent of what we've talked about in the past about people with foam rollers for like 35 minutes before they work out. It's like, get under the bar, brother, you know. So, Mike, what are your thoughts about very long warm-ups and whatnot? Yeah, in general, I agree. You know, it goes back to what is the point of a warm-up, right? The point of the warm-up is to get ready to do the main event, not to gas yourself so bad that the main event sucks. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, sometimes if you've, you know, got a lot of muscle skeletal things you're working around, I've been guilty of, you know, taking an hour and a half to do random stuff before I could train many years ago, but I was a walking train wreck at that point, and I don't, if you're spending an hour doing it, even if all those things are helping, then you need to look at other lifestyle and lifting <laughs> considerations. But yeah, I mean, in general, I tell clients, yeah, five, ten minutes, and I usually find that the less warm-up they can do and still perform well, I view that as a, a good thing. Obviously, you don't want to increase risk or anything like that, but yeah, that just seems like a very long period of time, especially in that age group, and yeah, it just seems crazy. Right on. I think the other thing, too, is I've actually worked with swim teams, collegiate, like, D1 swim teams, and I actually... It was the only kind of team where, because of the team culture, and I don't know how common this is with swimming in general, but I met with them with the coach not there. Once with the coach there, and then they actually yeah. asked me afterward, can we, we meet without the coach in front of us? Because they actually had a body fat problem. Uh, it was a women's swim team, and they were basically saying, we get so damn hungry from spending like hours in the pool. And it's worth mentioning, too, if the water's very cold... Right, yep. and you start to shiver and whatnot, you'll burn through glycogen even more. Um, but they get so hungry, and I think listeners, you know, when you were a kid, you swam all day, how ravenous you could be. Um, and then they would just go, just destroy thousands of calories in a buffet kind of thing after practice. Uh, and then sometimes there was a little bit of a party culture there. So when you add alcohol to that mix, you know, you're not making the best decisions, and it was just very tough, you know. Uh, last one, this is really just a comment before we go to break, and then we ask. Uh, I'm going to fire some quick questions at Mike. It'll be fun, light, fair here with Villaway. So this is from Alexander. He says, good evening. Uh, I'm writing in response to your brief advert at the beginning section of this week's Iron Radio podcast, episode 479. First, I would like to say that I'm a huge fan of the show and a rather longtime listener of several years. I'm a grad student and fellow Iron enthusiast. So I uh, appreciate your show's unique blend of research and practice. As a scientist and fellow nerd, the gang has helped me wade through the growing deluge of information out there about fitness, nutrition, health, etc. In addition to my interest in health and fitness, I'm also a huge fan of coffee, like most grad students. Uh, I would love to learn more about uh, your project and lend a hand if possible. I've played with many different blends of coffee, amount, and brewing methods myself in pursuit of a cup of coffee that I enjoy and provides a solid uh, boost of energy for the gym, I usually end up doing a slow pour-over method. So that could be informative there, slow pour-over. Nonetheless, I'm happy to participate in the research uh, or the project. If you still need people, thanks, and keep doing what you're doing, Alexander. So thanks, Alexander. That's appreciated stuff. You're definitely amongst like-minded people. So, all right. Having said that, uh, we're going to go to break, and when we come back... Quick fire questions.
Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit uh, royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, folks, we're back. It's been a crazy morning. Um, Mike's recording from the car. I'm sitting here in, <laughs> yeah, to break the fourth wall, I'm sitting here in my gym clothes because uh, I've really got to get to the gym as soon as we hang up um, instead of my pajamas, which sometimes I record in, admittedly. Uh, either way, slurping coffee. We have quick fire questions. So I'm going to blast these at Mike one at a time. He, he's going to answer, and then I will answer uh, and it's just fun, light stuff that you can listen to as you drive around or, you know, go to the gym, whatever. Uh, number one, said, by the way, let me qualify. These are not either or kinds of questions. We've played with that in episodes in the past, like chicken or beef. Yeah. You know, some of those are even harder because they're so close. These are open-ended, though. Um, so just maybe you get a professional opinion, maybe learn something, maybe be entertained. Number one, desert island exercise. What would yours be? Oh, I'd have to go with uh, some form of a deadlift. Okay. Why would you do that just quickly? Basically, just uh, it's fun. It's a full body exercise. If you only had to do one, you're going to hit pretty much every muscle group, mm -hmm. and my body just likes it better than squatting. <laughs> okay. Uh, I would choose squat for similar reasons. Yep. Um, 
I'm cheating to say I would also have a barbell there so I could do curls or something else. So <laughs> do some upper oh, body. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, for similar reasons, right? I think when you talk about the king of exercises, it's always going to be squat or deadlift for various yeah. reasons. Um, okay. Yeah, big compound movements. Number two, what's the worst recovery mistake that someone could make? Oh, I guess if I had to pick one just based off of physiologic impact, so not psychological, I'm right now, even though it's kind of trendy and sexy, I'm probably going more with sleep, but oh man, under eating is like super close to that also, but I, yeah, I agree too. I, I, I had this conversation with Kelly this morning. And I said, oh, as damaging as under-eating is, I've got to go with sleep. I said almost identically yeah. what you said. It's just devastating, right? So Yeah, yeah. And going back to the essential thing, if if you don't have it, you at some point are going to die. There's actually a weird genetic disease where people can't sleep and usually don't live much past a few months once it kind of hits that onset. But, yeah. Yeah, that's very timely because I just got an email, by the way, about a parent locally who has a child with McArdle's disease, right? So they, oh, wow. he, uh, he can't store carbohydrates and yeah. very poor exercise tolerance. But again, compare that to what you just said. I'd rather have poor exercise tolerance because I can't, I can't store and use glycogen well. Um, or that No, that might be a glycogen phosphorylase deficiency. In either case... It's a glycogen you, phosphorylase yeah, deficiency. Yeah, yeah, you can't They can't break your, down glycogen. Right, you can't tap your glycogen stores, and yep. you have poor exercise tolerance. But again, I'd rather have poor exercise tolerance than um, die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, sleep wins. So, And it's funny, it's, it's at the top of both of our lists, and it's what people probably abuse the most, you know? Oh, by far, and I, I know I have a multi-decade history of abusing sleep but i've been doing much better the last five years so there you it's, go. It's much better well for god's sake you're a heart rate variability researcher <laughs> yeah <laughs> hypocrite but, no i'm just kidding yeah okay. 10 years working in the cardiovascular med tech space so. right right <laughs> okay um number three what's your most typical gym attire uh for that i actually go by is it summer or winter so <laughs> Yeah. So winter, since I'm normally in my garage, I bring the bars in so they're nice and warm, which is nice. But uh, sweatpants. This past winter, I played around with wearing some compression uh, gear underneath. And it was more or less just because I got them at a, a discount and they wanted me to try them. So I'm like, oh, whatever. And then I found with um, like deadlifts and even some squat stuff, it just felt a little bit better. And maybe it's because of deadlift once the bar hits your your shin you've got something to kind of pull up against and you just don't rip all your clothes apart yeah yeah um and then normally just a sweatshirt and a hat and then usually after yeah 15 20 minutes it's just a t-shirt and pants at that point and it's pretty warm uh summer yeah just a pair of uh i bought a pair of shorts from uh driven nutrition and i've kind of beat the hell out of them i've worn them in costa rica and i brought them with with traveling and they seem to hold up really well and I usually just wear some type of black, death metal looking t-shirt. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, I almost always wear what I still call spandex shorts underneath my sweats. So compression yeah, shorts. You know, you might say Under yeah. Armour now. I just, to say spandex sounds so 80s and funny, but that's yeah. that, that's what I, I, I have them on right now. And I either, 
in the su- in the very hot days of the summer, I'll wear some like knee length shorts over top of them. Most of the year, I wear like a, almost a t shirt material kind of sweatpants, if that makes any sense. The real light ones. Um, oh they, yeah, they almost look like sleepy pants, like pajama type things. Um, in fact, sometimes they're hard to find. Uh, there was a guy in the gym. He's like, you know, I've been looking everywhere for those. Where do you actually get them? You know, and you just have to look around. You can find them at stuff like Kohl's or. I don't know. Um, you just got to browse around. Maybe even Walmart. I don't know. But T-shirt type sweatpants. Similar with – I have like a T-shirt style super duper thin hoodie like I just picked up at Old Navy or something. And if I'm going to go to the gym and do high rep sets, I might wear a, like a, a, a tank kind of underneath that. Um, and then if I get real hot, I take the thin you know, sweatshirt hoodie thing off. Uh, usually I don't. Uh, but yeah. Or sometimes I will wear like the black t-shirt, metal kind of shirt, like you do. So, no zubas. What's that? No zubas. I don't even know what that is. Oh, you don't remember the old school bodybuilders with the string tank tops with the oh the light cloth? Yeah, with string the tanks. Animal prints on them. Oh, I didn't realize. <laughs> yeah, with, yeah, I actually have some of those in my closet. I should take a picture <laughs> of what's in my closet from the eighties. Oh. My God, <laughs> string tanks and inside. striped <laughs> striped spandex like leggings and oh my oh, God, yeah. <laughs> you know the, the the fanny pack which are sort of back around oh, yeah. a little bit. Oh God. Okay, <laughs> number four, <laughs> number four, quick fire. Favorite meat? What's your favorite meat? The, one of the best I've ever had was. Uh, Unfortunately, we can't get it now, but a local farmer used to raise uh, grass-fed beef, and it was the old uh, Highland cattle, which are kind of designed to be grass-fed, and they haven't genetically really ever been changed. And he called it a rib steak, but it was basically just um, a steak with they left a little bit of the rib on the end. So kind of like a leaner cut, so sort of like a sirloin. I think it's technically called a rib steak, but some, some chef can tell me if I'm right or wrong. And that was like by far my favorite. A super good flavor profile. It was didn't taste. Sometimes grass would be taste a little bit weird. Um, mm-hmm. I actually like it. And then the beef color was interesting. It was super, super just dark red. And I don't know if that why that was, or maybe that was just that breed of cattle. But interesting. Um, yeah, that was one of my favorites. Yeah, I, I got to go with that too. A really good steak. I, I could also go for really good, fairly lean burger. It doesn't have to be super fatty. You know, a lot of people talk about the tenderness of steak, but you can even get a round yeah. steak if it's perfectly cooked um, or it's tenderized a little. So good. I, I got to go with that, too. And if you make it grass-fed, uh, probably even better. Um, just not to say that corn-fed beef isn't good. I know it's not as good for the cows and it's yeah. sort of weird, but... Um, tastes a little bit sweeter to me. It yeah. tastes a little bit different. And usually the marbling, obviously, is much better in grain-fed animals because of the... Well, the insulin resistance of the poor bastards, but. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, yeah, I got to put steak on my, on my list. Uh, number five, um, personal record in your favorite lift. So looking back or this could be competitive or whatever, but mostly just in the gym. What's a PR that just jumps to your mind that you're proud of? Yeah, I would say if I look at everything overall, it's probably from a while ago. Like my goal for the longest time was to. Uh, just bench press my body weight in a competition and then twice body weight uh, deadlift. Um, so that was kind of my main goal because my first deadlift I ever did was 95 pounds and I literally got 
crushed by the bar in college, which oh, was wow. embarrassing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think overall those are probably the, the two I was the most proud of. And what's interesting about that is that once you kind of hit whatever your kind of milestones are, it's amazing how less you kind of care about them at that point. You know, So I haven't really done much straight bar bench press since then. And I've done huh. deadlifts with more just different varieties of them and that type of thing, too. So right. those yeah. are two that jump out at me. That's so you. What about yourself? Varieties. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I have a video, and I haven't put it online because, you know, Fortress is dropping F-bombs, screaming at me. And, you know, and I have to be careful what, what I put online. But um, <laughs> uh, is squatting 315 for a 20. Uh, that oh, was nice. brutal. brutal, and I oh. now Rob Rob will do it for a twenty five fairly routinely, oh, but that's what he was always good at, right? I mean, and, and I remember Rob outweighs me by like seventy pounds or something at least, yeah. And it just you know just crazy, um, but you know when you lift around larger people, you kind of have to rise to the challenge, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, he's filming me, you know, do that. So it's like, oh, he Lonnie didn't squat deep or this or that. Well, it's it, there it is. Uh, so <laughs> it was that was devastating for me because I've never actually done anything like power lift or heavy, if that makes sense. But for yeah. you know, fairly heavy times volume, that was something that I remember. Um, number six, most cringe worthy injury that you've had. Oh boy. I've had a whole bunch of them from ripped out shoulder, separated <laughs> shoulder, pulled hip flexors, busted up ankle, blah, blah, blah. The, the two that jumped to mind, I'd say the most horrific looking was, you couldn't really see my ankle, but that swelled up super big, was probably the shoulder. I was playing broom ball in college when I was doing my master's, and I fell, and a guy landed on the top part of my upper arm, a humerus, my shoulder snapped to the middle of my chest and was completely dislocated. I could oh. move my hand and that was about it. And it stayed out for about 10 minutes. Oh my God. And I went over to the to the side and I was doing ski patrol at the time and I go to the guy and said, hey, yeah, I, I anteriorly dislocated my shoulder. And he just looks at me and he sees my arm just dangling in front of me. And I'm like, yeah, I effed up my shoulder. You got to go play for me. He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and about 10 minutes after, I was like, God, I don't want to put this back in myself because if I catch a nerve, they're going to dislocate it again. I could lose sensation. And, you know, the doctor's 45 minutes away because I know how long it takes them to get to the hospital in Houghton, Michigan, in the middle of nowhere at night. And it just whoop, popped back in by itself. And I checked. I didn't catch any nerves or blood vessels, no changes in color or anything like that. I was like, wow, this feels so much better now. And then I woke up the next day and I'm like, Oh, this is not good. <laughs> oh man! Mm. So wow. Yeah, that was a uh, nine months before I got full range of motion back, and probably a year and a half before I got the same strength back oh, after that. Uh, I mean, I could shorten that now, knowing what I know now. But yeah, that's oh. that was probably the worst. The most painful was when I pulled both my hip flexors and my groin. Uh, I did it doing deadlifts with tight hip flexors and then decided to do incline sprints on the treadmill, right? So it's grabbing your leg and it's violently ripping it behind you. And I just pulled everything in that area. And I couldn't walk. I couldn't drive a car because I couldn't pick my leg up. I couldn't roll over at night without just excruciating pain. And there's nothing they can do for it, you know, just try not to move it and 
Yeah, that took many, many months before I could walk, not like a geriatric penguin. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, that was when you told me, like, yeah, you couldn't even roll over at night. Like, no, you take for granted you just shifting your legs across each other at night, and you, you just couldn't even do it. You know? Yeah, I had to grab the sheet underneath and pull the sheet out from the bottom part of my hip so they would drop the other direction. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> oh. Well, there are three things that I've dealt with, like, my whole life, actually, because of just, you know, getting myself into it. Um, <laughs> I think most notable was when I tore my triceps, and I've talked about that on the on the show yeah, before. But I remember that. Um, yeah, yeah. I, it was just, it was very heavy isolation work. I was just doing lying triceps extensions, and it started to tear. It wasn't the popping sound a lot of people sound. I'm like, that would actually have been much nicer. This was like a wet washcloth being torn. You could hear it. Oh. Um, and you could just imagine, like, the tendon peeling away from the electronon because it was 100% rupture. You know, it retracted up my arm a little bit, just maybe, you know, a centimeter or two, but enough that it was weird. And I turned black from my wrist to my right nipple. I mean, I have oh. a picture. I might actually put some of the pictures on our Facebook page, <laughs> like – Wow, you know, and of course the ER doc sent me home with ibuprofen and said you're slightly strained and this and that. I'm like, you're you're an adult. Oh. You're adult. Um, so I went. Luckily, I have a. I know some guys who are orthopods, and I just went and said, help, <laughs> help now yeah. before it scars <laughs> scars halfway up my arm. You know, and anyway, yeah, that would would have been the worst. But I've my right ankle, and then losing my front tooth in a heavyweight uh, martial arts competition was. Not, and I'm, I'm actually dealing with that this week, too. They're having to replace an old, you know, crown prosthetic tooth uh, all these years later because I'm now old, and that happened when I was in my early 20s. And But anyway, that was that was rough. It was a victorious day, so I kind of have fond memories of it. But, man, <laughs> I'm, my, yeah, my trophy is like $3,000 to repair a freaking tooth this week. So awesome. Uh. Um. Yeah, so lots of cringe-worthy stuff. I bet Phil's got loaded with these. I almost wish he oh, was yeah. here. Number seven, biggest middle-aged fitness lifestyle gripe. So what sucks about being middle-aged as a fitness guy? Actually, overall, I feel generally better now than I ever have the rest of my life, which is a oh, good nice. thing. Yep. Um, I mean, the only thing, I guess, if I were to complain or I guess I could change would be... They're kind of related. Like, I feel like for me to do well, like, I need, like, time in bed, like, literally almost, like, 10 hours a night, which seems just insane. And since, like, 2011, I've tested every, quote-unquote, hack and sleep thing you can think of, and nothing changes it at all. Mm. Um, I'm kind of related to that. My HRV in general for uh, relative to heart rate is excruciatingly low, so very... Uh, higher on the stress. So my wife measured hers the other day, and she's like, oh, mine's pretty good. It was 88. I'm like, what was your resting heart rate? She's like, 73. I'm like, wow. And mine was like, the good day, 74, my resting heart rate's 50. <laughs> oh, wow. So, hmm. yeah. So I guess if I could change something, you know, and those are probably just related to, I think, just exercise or stress tolerance. Um, you know, it's always hard because you try to not compare yourself to other people, but it just seems like mine's much lower than it should be. Um, so again, maybe that's related to age. Maybe it's related to goofy eye stuff and a bunch of other things, but yeah, it's probably the one thing I would change if I could. Honestly, Mike, I think, I think it may be that you're harder on yourself. Maybe that it's like with the injuries and everything we put ourselves through and yeah, you take for granted 
the fact you know the the what, as much as you travel and how that affects your sleep and everything else. Oh yeah, totally. You know, yeah. Uh, sometimes we need to r- listen to our bodies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, because we're asking more than maybe we think. For me, I think middle-aged fitness lifestyle gripe uh, is my stiffness and arthritis. I didn't have as much of a problem mm. with it until my late 40s. In fact, you, you mentioned comparing yourself to others. I really want to see how you and Phil fare when you're like, um, you know, because I'm 49. And yeah. I didn't feel, I really didn't feel anything, any effects of aging. I think in my 46th year, I started going gray. I started seeing wrinkles. Like all at once, I started like <laughs> starting to notice minor things, you know. Um, but a big part of it was, you know, my mom has just wicked arthritis, and I can I can actually see it a little bit in my fingers and and stuff like that. And um, it, it really it really shuts me down, you know, in as far as heavy lifting in the gym and that kind of stuff. It's probably good, so I don't tear something else anyway. But <laughs> or the other thing that kind of goes with that is, I think plus two days uh, in order to recover. If I get sore from the gym, I'm not sore for one to two days. I'm sore for four days. You know, I'm, mm. I get wrecked uh, and it, I'm just slower to recovery. And that and that that sucks. <laughs> middle <Yeah>. age, <laughs> middle age woes. Um, yeah. And you could try to address that, too. Like I was talking about with the antioxidants or uh, stretching, whatever. Uh, but uh, number eight. Rate testosterone replacement on a 10 scale. So hormone replacement on a 10 scale. How good is it? What's your opinion? I guess right now I would go maybe a seven. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think like Phil can talk about this and he has that in some cases it can be incredibly beneficial. Um, I actually just was talking to a client about this literally yesterday. Um, the caveat I always tell people is try to figure out what the root cause is because a lot of physicians just want to give you testosterone and go on your merry way. It's like, well, you probably want to figure out what, you know, what is the root cause of it? Is it LH related? Is it, you know, a bunch of other stuff they can look at? Yeah. Um, and then the other question I always tell guys is ask your doc, well, what do you do if you ever want to go off? You know, cause that's, for me, that's the one thing that's kind of, I guess, the bigger downside. And we don't, there's not a ton of risk factors with it per se, but I always have this weird thing where I don't really want to be dependent upon anything. You know, and the fact that it's, you know, you can get off of it, but it's going to be a little bit harder. Um, yeah, so I think it's definitely beneficial, but yeah, that's why I would give it a 7 and not a 10. I actually, I, for similar reasons, uh, I gave it an 8. Um, yeah. Because I think there's so much good to it. I remember years ago I wrote an article and I was responding on a testosterone.com forum, and I said, listen, I think you have to think about age and the, and the responses to it. I'm not sure an old body is going to respond in exactly the same way as a 20-year-old's body, you know, or a 30-year-old's. Yeah. And they're like, oh, you're crazy. I'm saying, listen, I'm not saying it's not <laughs> beneficial. Probably going to help your glucose tolerance, you know, uh, muscle preservation, so many things. But you have to think about things like uh, an enlarged prostate, right? Um, because, unfortunately, the only thing yep. that's really available for hormone replacement therapy widely is something that's so androgenic, like raw testosterone gel, uh, but prostate would be something that you got to think about, and again, a reason it's not a ten, and it also cost. I mean, you're talking about anywhere if insurance doesn't cover it, it could be between three hundred and eight or nine hundred dollars a month to be put Oof. on gel. I mean, as opposed to injections, and that's madness. Because then, to your point, it's not just if you want to come off, but you may 
have to go off cold turkey, right? Yeah. Because I've actually read that one out of three Americans hoard medicines when insurance is covering it. But you've got to be <laughs> careful hoarding of something that's scheduled like that. Um, yeah. I, I doubt anybody's going to raid your house, but you know, you, you've got all this scheduled you know, med in your house, and you don't want some idiot trying to make it look like you're trying to distribute it or something. So I think prostate and cost are two things that, you know, make me a little wary. So, yeah, I still think probably 8 on a 10 scale, though, the, the benefits have got to outweigh it. Um, anyway. Yeah. And it is crazy that society has almost changed where now you see those commercials, like, all the time because companies figured out they can make a lot of money on it. Yes. And, you know, aging politicians decided, hey, I like this, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's like the reason they never went after... Uh, in recent years, alcohol, you know, because yeah. too many people do it. If they start, you know, limiting its accessibility, then they're going to lose votes. But it's always easy to point fingers at stuff like hormones um, until, of course, everybody wants it, right? Yeah. <laughs> then they change their opinion. Uh, which brings us to our next one, number nine, most effective fat loss supplement or drug? Oh... Yeah, I just had this discussion with a different client the other day, too. And I don't know. I've been entirely underwhelmed, even within drugs for fat loss. I mean, I guess I would have to say probably some type of thyroid medication, mm -hmm. you know, whether you go mm -hmm. T3 or T4. You know, if you're going to do it, probably just you know go direct T3 and keep an eye on it. But obviously, there's downsides to that, too. But... From what I've seen, but even even then, I think it was, was it Michael Ruscio was saying that in the literature, if you have someone who's hypothyroid and you normalize their thyroid, in terms of weight loss, I think it's on like an average of like 10 to 15 pounds or something in that. I may have gotten that wrong, but it's still not massive, but it's mm -hmm. a lot higher than other stuff we have. Uh, there's some data on the old um, ephedra, caffeine, aspirin stack. It's probably more of a anorexic than anything else it just kills your appetite and you can move around more so your meat doesn't plummet when your calories are low yeah but probably one of those two i mean clenbuterol in humans and eh, i think it's much higher of a risk and that the tolerance effect is so fast that the doses you would use for longer than a couple of weeks are just scary <laughs> yeah I, i'm gonna differ just a little i, I actually went yeah. with adrenergics as the sure. most effective, so clenbuterol or like yep. the ECA stack of days of old, yeah. you know. Uh, to your point, though, yeah, the huge issue with clenbuterol, um, because it's so beta 2 selective, you downregulate so fast uh, and that kind of thing. Um, it's one of those meds I wish w would get more attention. I've seen it because not only does it cause fat loss, you know, and athletes would sort of use that, like, uh, two days on, two days off, or two weeks yeah. on, two weeks off, always trying to, like, rejuvenate their beta-2 receptor number, or, you know, ad adrenaline receptors and whatnot. I always wish it would get more attention, though. I saw a study in rehab where they dramatically re reduced the time of knee rehab by giving half the people clenbuterol because it made them really, really much stronger. Uh, huh. In fact, that's partly why we're doing that project with coffee and total knee replacement rehab that we're, we have going on right now, some of the similar effects, you know, because if you have better contractility and with coffee, you might even get a very mild analgesia, um, you know, would it on some level weaker than, than Clen, basically, or, or ad, a raw adrenergic drug, would it help? 
and it was kind of partly based on that. But I wish it would get more attention. We have an obesity epidemic, and if they could figure out the downreg thing with the right dosing scheme or something, it could be fascinating, I think, clinically relevant. Um, and ephedra, caffeine, aspirin is all but removed from the market, of course, but uh, you don't get quite as much downreg because it's a beta 1, 2, and 3. It's a little less selective. The problem, of course, with that is it's going to affect heart function much more, I think. Um, again, we're talking about effectiveness here, not safety profile. Right? Yeah, Some yeah. people, you got to be really careful. Ephedra is a pressor med. It's going to drive your blood pressure up, especially people who are high testosterone. and They might have a, a greater sensitivity to stimulants. Right? We're talking about things that are stimulants here, and they bring all those potential issues, rapid heart rate, maybe skipped heartbeats, insomnia, tremor, tremors, just all the stuff that goes with that. But we're just talking about effect, effectiveness here. Quick caveat here or disclaimer. Again, anytime you look at a supplement or a drug, the two main things that you need to wrestle with uh, amongst everything else is safety and effectiveness, right? So we're not going off the deep end with um, safety with this particular question. You know, one thing I might add would be growth hormone. Growth hormone is such an yeah. unbelievably lipolytic thing. It's the only hormone I can think of the way bodybuilders use and abuse it, right, with growth hormone and then testosterone at the same time causes just amazing muscular gains and fat loss at the same time. It's almost unheard of, that kind of repartitioning otherwise. Like you said, in animals, you'll see clenbuterol do that, repartition. Yes. But yeah. humans can't tolerate that kind of dose, you know, so it's mostly just a fat loss thing. But with growth hormone, just amazing. Um, yeah. Uh, that's not the kind of thing you're going to get easily replaced by a legitimate physician like with T-Gel. Uh, which brings us yeah, to our last one, number 10. I was going to say, real, real quick on that, too, if you throw safety completely out the window, you could go with, like, 2,4-dinitrophenyl or DNP. Oh, my God. Which is a, a massive uncoupling agent. Right? Oh, so my God. I goes in too scary. and spins off free energy just massively and... You know, the anecdotal reports are for fat loss, it's amazing. But you take too much, you will literally cook yourself from the inside out. And yeah. even if you get medical help other than trying to keep your body cool, there's nothing, there's no chemical that can reverse it. So you're, you know, people unfortunately have died from taking it. Adding the fact that it's, you know, not regulated, so God knows what you actually get and, uh, therapeutic window on it is incredibly tight you know the therapeutic dose is very close to the ld50 so yeah <laughs> yeah i would even say effective dose as opposed to therapeutic because we're talking about like an yeah. industrial kind of yeah you know an industrial chemical poison maybe yeah <laughs> i actually 15 years ago i created a little diagram maybe i should put that online too on how dmp works you know what it does yeah. as a you know, uncoupling agent, and it lets the little hydrogen ions, you know, completely flow back and forth across the inner membrane of the mitochondria and all that. Yep. Just scary stuff. Yeah. Um, number 10 was, if you could legally take any anabolic for four months, what would it be? Oh, probably since I'm, I'm oddly very risk-averse in certain areas. Like, I'll go kiteboard and do all that kind of stuff, but in terms of other risks, I'm like, uh, I'm just like super risk averse. <laughs> yeah. Um, probably just testosterone, which is probably not mm -hmm. very exciting and boring, but yeah. I can at least go back and look and see literature and see studies and, and have a pretty good idea of what's going to go on. I mean, I'm not trying to be my own endocrinologist, but 
you know, that compared to a bunch of other weird designer drugs that were basically just designed to get around detection. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, that's what I'd use. I think I would I would go for 16 weeks of Nandrolone, um, yeah. De- DECA, right? Uh, yep. Just because it's much less androgenic, uh, yep. probably less prostate problems and all that kind of stuff. The main downside of Nandrolone, because uh, I, I used to be fascinated with some of this literature uh, decades ago, but uh, was the pituitary suppression. You know, you So you want secondary mm. hypogonadism. It's real bad for that. But if you, let's say you're in a hormone replacement age or, you know, permanent kind of scenario, I don't see a ton of downsides to that particular med. It's less, you know, on the side effects and, you know, um, that kind of stuff and a little bit higher on the anabolic side. It's probably something that women and men would respond to amazingly, you know, and stuff like that, but... Um, I think, I think it, it helps with the with anecdotally, that. isn't it? Joint pain that's supposed to help a fair amount with too. Interesting. I've even, I, if I remember right, this is not very scientific, but I'm, I think I remember also that it has some kind of anti-aromatase kind of effects where it would do quite the opposite of something like giving you gynecomastia. You know, hmm. so I mean, there's a just it's to me it's an, a, a fascinating medication. And I would seriously consider that, you know, talking to a doctor about that. He's like, here, we have a new option for replacement therapy. You know, you're 60 years old, Lonnie. Do you want to give this a try? I, I just might. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, all right, there you have it. Um, Ten quick-fire questions for everyone um, about how at least Mike and I think about some of these things. And like usual, we've gone over <laughs> when Phil's not with yeah. us. <laughs> So, yeah, and the last super quick bonus question: What would be your your desert island CD that you oh, have right. to play, and you only get to pick one? That's very tough. Desert island CD. I would probably have to reach for one of the old Van Halens. Um, yeah, and I, I like when Diamond Dave and Sammy were were front fronting the you know Van Halen. I know a lot of people don't, but I, it would be very hard. I would pick maybe a, a greatest hits. I would just cheat sure. Van Halen yep. greatest hits. Yeah. <laughs> what would you do? Uh, I guess if I had to pick one, especially if I'm probably going to be doing deadlifts all day on the island also, uh, <laughs> probably Demanufacturer by Fear Factory. Oh. It's still probably one of my... I, that CD, since it came out, has, like, never left my gym. I actually have, like, three copies of it, which is wow. scary. <laughs> Good to know. Yeah. All right. Cool stuff. All right. Good stuff. Well, uh, catch up with everybody next time. All right. See ya. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. 
And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each haul of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.